Real quick before we get into the show, just want to let you know that I am going to be a guest on the Cafe Tanwir podcast on July 20th, 2020. So it would be a real big favor to me if you can go and subscribe to the Cafe Tanwir podcast. It's not my pod- my podcast. is done by a couple of Muslim sisters. Find Cafe Tanwir. Tanwir is T-A-N-W-E-E-R. Find the Cafe Tanware podcast in your local podcast catcher app, however you listen to podcasts. Find Cafe Tanware and subscribe to them and listen to me and all the other episodes that they have as well. Don't just listen to my episode. Listen to all the episodes. And if you like them, inshallah, give them a, a good rating and review in whatever app you choose to use. That'll be, that'll be a really big favor for me and may Allah reward you. Well, now let's get into the show. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season five of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 524, Beersheba and Jerusalem. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Ottomans are fighting three different campaigns in the Middle East. The Arab Revolt, which started off slowly, gets new life with the capture of Aqaba. The Arab rebels are not aware of the Sykes-Picot Agreement giving the British and French control over most of the Middle East. Using Aqaba, the British are now able to bring troops into Palestine and Transjordan by ship. Despite losing Aqaba, the Ottomans still fight the British to a stalemate at Gaza. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the fall of Jerusalem. Tanzimat The Ottoman Empire had a problem most empires have. It had an identity problem. What did it mean to be an Ottoman? The Ottoman Empire was about 75% Muslim, 20% Christian, and 5% other religions. It was also a melting pot of ethnicities including Turkish, Arab, Armenian, Greek, Assyrian, Kurdish, Serbian, and many more. With so many different groups, Islam was the only thing uniting the empire. However, by the 19th century, some Ottoman intellectuals began to question Islam's place in the empire's future. Many of them believed Islam's usefulness had run its course and it was time to imitate the secularism of the European powers. In 1839, Sultan Abdul Majid I signed two edicts ordering a series of reforms known as Tanzimat. Tanzimat was meant to modernize the empire and make it more secular yet retain its Islamic identity. Tanzimat dismantled the old feudal system. 
Regions that were once controlled by nobles or feudal lords were now run by governors appointed by Istanbul. Tanzimat established a centralized education department. This put education under state control and took it away from the religious community. Tanzimat also secularized the legal system, undermining the Sharia upon which the Ottoman Empire had always operated. The empire hoped a secular legal system that applied the law equally to all people would help foster a unified Ottoman identity. The Ottoman financial system was also revamped to be more in line with Western financial practices. All these reforms did bring some improvements to the empire. Several new educational institutions and universities were built, helping to raise the empire's overall literacy rate. Modern taxation policies ended much of the rampant corruption that had plagued the empire for so long. Improved taxation meant more revenues which the empire used to modernize its military. But these reforms also had unintended consequences. Implementing a secular legal system did not unite the various groups. If anything, it drove them further apart. One of the rules of the Sharia is that the Sharia cannot be imposed on non-Muslims. Hence, before Tanzimat, Religious minorities in the Ottoman Empire were governed by the laws of their own local religious communities. But with the removal of the Sharia, all citizens were now governed by a single, secular legal framework dictated by Istanbul. Having lost their autonomy, religious and ethnic minorities resented the Ottoman identity the government tried to impose upon them. Before long, Greek, Arab, Armenian, Serbian, and even Turkish nationalism had divided the empire into various ethnic factions. And even though the Ottoman military had improved, it still continued to suffer defeat at the hands of the Russians. All of these reforms cost money. And now that the Sharia was no longer a factor, the Ottoman government borrowed liberally at high interest rates leading to staggering amounts of public debt. By the 1860s, the empire was over 100 million pounds sterling in debt to various entities. The interest payments alone accounted for nearly half the empire's annual tax revenues. The new Ottoman education system sent young people to study in Europe. They came back with even more ideas to fix the empire. They believed Tanzimat had not gone far enough and called for further political reform. They wanted to establish a constitution and a parliament and relegate the sultan to figurehead status. The Ottoman Sultan was not in favor of these reforms. 
Sultan Abdul Aziz resisted these new ideas and persecuted these young intellectuals. The intellectuals went underground, formed secret societies like the young Ottomans, and continued to advocate for a constitutional monarchy. Crop failures, mounting public debt, lavish spending, and a Bulgarian uprising led to the removal of Sultan Abdul Aziz in 1876. He committed suicide a few days later, though foul play is also suspected. Abdul Aziz was replaced by his nephew Murad, who was deposed three months later due to insanity. Murad's younger brother, Abdul Hamid II, became the next sultan of the Ottoman Empire in 1876. The young Ottomans supported Abdul Hamid's ascendancy on the grounds that he would enact a new constitution. Abdul Hamid complied and the empire's first constitution and parliament came into being later that year. But simply creating a constitution and a parliament did not fix the empire's problems. In 1877, Russia used the Ottoman Empire's brutal suppression of the Bulgarian uprising as an excuse to declare war. The Ottomans were defeated and lost all of their territory in the Balkans. Abdul Hamid blamed the defeat on the new political reforms. He abolished the constitution disbanded parliament, and ruled the empire as an autocrat for the next 30 years. Sultan Abdul Hamid II continued to push the empire's modernization efforts, but he was suspicious of Western interference. Though he did not reverse all of the Tanzimat reforms, he preferred to emphasize the Islamic identity of the empire. And for a while, the empire experienced some stability and improvement. Abdul Hamid oversaw the construction of several institutions of higher learning and railways. He managed to avoid further conflicts with Russia. And he worked hard to lower the empire's public debt. The Ottomans owed so much money, its European creditors forced them to create a government agency to manage its debt. The Ottoman Public Debt Administration was run by Westerners and managed all Ottoman financial affairs. Let that sink in. The Ottoman Empire's financial system was controlled by European foreigners. Sultan Abdul Hamid II did not trust the young Ottomans nor their reforms. His secret police dismantled these reformist organizations, forcing many of them to go into exile or operate in secrecy. The secret organizations continued to work against Sultan Abdul Hamid II both inside and outside the empire. And they also became more radical. They infiltrated the military. They adopted foreign ideologies such as Marxism, Humanism, and Freemasonry. They dropped the name Young Ottomans for the more nationalistic label Young Turks. The Young Turks was not a single entity nor an organized movement. 
It was various groups working in secret to bring down the Sultan's government. The situation in Gaza. Starting in April 1916, the British were on the offensive in Sinai. By February 1917, they controlled the entire peninsula along with the port of Aqaba, which had been captured by the forces of the Arab revolt. Now the Ottomans were well entrenched at Gaza, and so far, all British attempts to dislodge them had failed. The British launched assaults on Gaza in March 1917 and again in April 1917. Both times, they'd made significant gains, only for their momentum to fizzle off and retreat. After the second failed offensive on Gaza, both sides had settled into a stalemate that lasted about six months. By October 1917, the Ottoman defensive line stretched from Gaza on the Mediterranean coast east to Beersheba, which was about. 40 miles south of Jerusalem, the Ottomans constructed a 30-mile-long defensive network of trenches and machine gun pits between Gaza and Beersheba. The British also held a strong defensive position, having dug their own network of trenches roughly two miles south of the Ottomans. The two miles between the opposing forces created a no man's land in Palestine. Both sides used naval and artillery bombardment to dislodge the other, but to no avail. In June 1917, General Edmund Allenby was appointed commander of the British Egyptian Expeditionary Force, headquartered in Cairo. This put him in charge of all the British troops in Sinai and Palestine. Prime Minister Lloyd George had ordered General Allenby to capture Jerusalem by the end of the year. Jerusalem by Christmas became a British slogan. General Allenby, who fought against the Germans in France, brought a wealth of experience. This experience was supplemented by critical intelligence. Back in episode twenty-two, we mentioned how world-famous botanist Aaron Aronson created a Zionist spy organization in Palestine called Nili. Nili, operating under the guise of a research operation, fed Allenby vital information about Ottoman troop deployments. In addition to the Zionist spies, Allenby also received valuable information from Arab spies who had joined Sharif Hussein's rebellion. Using this information, Allenby formulated a plan to defeat the Ottomans in Palestine. The Battle of Beersheba. On October thirty-first, nineteen seventeen, General Allenby ordered his soldiers to attack the Ottomans at Gaza. The Ottomans expected this, but this attack was just a diversion. Allenby also sent two mounted cavalry divisions towards Beersheba. 
Just like in Mesopotamia, the Ottomans were outnumbered at Beersheba. They barely had 4,000 soldiers compared to nearly 50,000 British troops. Their only advantage was knowledge of the terrain and strong defenses. The first Ottoman advantage was neutralized by the Zionist and rebel spies. The second advantage was negated by their own faulty assumptions. Nearly 40 miles of open desert separated the British trenches and Beersheba. The Ottomans figured this desert was a sufficient enough natural defense. Anyone attempting to cross it would have to carry an unbearable amount of water. Hence, the Ottomans did not bother to use barbed wire to protect their positions at Beersheba. The British cavalry solved the water problem by racing through the desert at night at top speed. All they had to do was get to Beersheba by sunrise, which they did. The Ottomans at Beersheba awoke to the British cavalry charging down upon them. The cavalry pinned the Ottoman defenders down long enough for British infantry and artillery to join the fight. Outnumbered nearly ten to one, the Ottomans were overwhelmed and surrendered within a few hours. Meanwhile, Prince Faisal's troops from the Arab revolt were also busy. From their new base at Aqaba, the rebels cut Ottoman communications and rail lines preventing reinforcements from reaching Gaza or Beersheba. With Beersheba under their control, the British moved west through the Judean hills towards Gaza. This region was well defended, but the British had momentum and numbers on their side. Within a week, they were closing in on Gaza from both the east and the south. On November 6, 1917, the Ottomans began withdrawing from Gaza and retreating north. The British captured Gaza and continued to pursue the Ottomans as far north as Jaffa near modern-day Tel Aviv. The Haversack Ruse The Haversack Ruse, or Minertagen's Haversack, is a popular story describing how the British outsmarted the Ottomans at Beersheba. As the story goes, a few days before the battle, Colonel Richard Minersagen brazenly rode his horse into no man's land. The Ottomans gave chase and shot him, but Colonel Minersagen got away. In the confusion, Minersagen accidentally dropped his haversack which contained fake British plans for an attack on Gaza. The Ottoman soldiers recovered the sack and passed it on to their German commanding officers who thought the fake plans were legitimate. This led the Ottomans to strengthen their defenses in Gaza at the expense of Beersheba. This may be a fascinating story, but it is mostly untrue. Yes, the British tried to trick the Ottomans by deliberately losing their fake plans. Other than that, the rest of the story is a myth. 
neither the Germans nor the Ottomans fell for the ploy. The German commanders figured it was a trick and did not make any changes to their defensive plans. Nor did Colonel Minertagen ride out into no man's land. But more on that later. The Ottomans did not lose Beersheba because they fell for the Haversack ruse. They lost because they did not use barbed wire, they underestimated the British, and the British had greater numbers and better intelligence. The lie of the Haversack ruse was further immortalized in the 1987 Australian movie The Light Horseman. Colonel Richard Minertagen, the main character of the Haversack ruse, was hailed as a war hero. But as it turns out, he was a scoundrel and probably an undiagnosed sociopath. Born into a wealthy family with close ties to the Rothschilds, Minersagen grew to be a respected soldier, spy, and ornithologist. And by the time he died in 1967, he was credited with cataloging thousands of different bird species for the British Museum. However, in 2005, it was discovered that he had lied about most of his work and had even claimed credit for the work of other scientists. Minertagen got away with this fraud for decades because of his status as a war hero. This sparked further investigations into his life and eventually, the events of the Haversack ruse were revealed to be a lie. Minertsagen was not even involved in the ruse. It was another soldier who dropped the haversack with the false British documents. But that man was later killed in battle, and Colonel Minertsagen adopted the story as his own. And while totally unrelated, there's also speculation that Minertsagen may have killed his second wife. In 1921, his wife died when she accidentally shot herself while he was giving her shooting lessons. Richard Minersagen was the only eyewitness and his story was taken at face value. It was later discovered that he was carrying on a relationship with his 15-year-old cousin at the time his wife died. The Fall of Jerusalem By November 13, 1917, the British had driven the Ottomans out of Jaffa and north of the Yarkon River. From there, the British moved east towards Jerusalem, engaging pockets of Ottoman resistance as they went. Making sure to keep the fighting out of the Holy City, the British cleared out Ottoman forces south and east of Jerusalem. The Ottoman soldiers that survived the fighting fled to Nablus, 30 miles north. With British victory imminent, Jerusalem's religious leaders met with General Allenby to peacefully surrender the city. And on December 11, 1917, General Edmund Allenby, along with Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot, entered Jerusalem. None of the leaders of the Arab Revolt were invited.
For the first time in 730 years, Jerusalem was not under Muslim authority. Allenby took care to show respect for the great city revered by three different faiths. He entered Jerusalem on foot and did not carry the British flag with him. And for the time being, he decided to delay the announcement of the Balfour Declaration. The conquest of Jerusalem was a major victory for the Allied forces. Lloyd George had delivered on his promise to capture the city by Christmas. Russia officially leaves the war. As the British were pushing the Ottomans out of Palestine, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, were taking over Russia. And with the levers of government in their hands, the Bolsheviks found some interesting documents in the Russian archives. Even though many of the leaders of the Bolshevik party were Jewish, they rejected Zionism as another capitalist movement. And they still resented their capitalist former allies who had dragged Russia into the Great War. In November 1917, the Bolsheviks released the details of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. They gleefully exposed the Tsar's complicity in the agreement in return for the Dardanelles Strait. Embarrassed by this revelation, Prime Minister Lloyd George tried to brush it off. He claimed the agreement was made before he came to office and that many things had changed since then. When Sharif Hussein and the other Arab leaders demanded an explanation, Lloyd George reiterated Britain's commitment to Arab independence. The Ottoman government made the most of this revelation. They ridiculed Sharif Hussein, calling him a dupe and a fool. They criticized him for betraying the honors bestowed upon him by the caliph just to become a slave for the British. The Bolsheviks signed an armistice agreement with the Central Powers in December 1917, effectively taking Russia out of the war. The two sides continued to negotiate terms of a final peace agreement until March 1918. This presented a big problem for the Allies. American troops were still months away from arriving, and now the Germans would have a slight numerical advantage on the Western Front. Germany began transferring troops away from Russia to face the Allies in France and Belgium. But the Germans were up against the clock. Whatever advantages they currently held would disappear once the Americans arrived. With this small window of opportunity available, Germany launched a major offensive hoping to break the Allies and force them to the peace table. This was Germany's last chance to win the war. Wilson's 14 Points A few weeks after the Russian armistice, American President Woodrow Wilson announced his famous 14 points in a speech before Congress. The speech, delivered on January 8, 1918, was intended to clarify and outline American plans for peace after the war. 
This was a critical point for President Wilson. Before the Zimmerman telegram, which we discussed in episode 20, most Americans wanted to stay out of the war. And now that they were in it, they did not want to fight to maintain Britain's and France's colonial empires. President Wilson knew all about Sykes-Picot. The Allies had to tell him about it once the United States entered the war. But Wilson, like the other Allied leaders, hid this knowledge from the public. When the Bolsheviks released the details of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Wilson had to scramble to explain America's purpose in the war. President Wilson hoped his 14 points would convince the American public that the United States was fighting for a just cause. The 14 points went as follows. 1. Open diplomacy between all nations and no more secret treaties. 2. Freedom of the seas. 3. Freedom of trade. 4. Reduction of military arms to only what is needed for domestic security. 5. Review of colonial claims and an attempt to balance the wishes of the local populace with those of the master nation. 6. The Central Powers must abandon all occupied Russian territory. 7. Germany must abandon Belgium. 8. Germany must also abandon all French territory. 9. Italy's borders were to be adjusted to include Italian populations currently living under the authority of the Central Powers. 10. Austria-Hungary was to be broken up and its local populations made autonomous. 11. The Central Powers must abandon occupied Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro. 12. The Turkish part of the Ottoman Empire was to remain intact, but the rest of it must be broken up. The Ottomans must also permanently open the Dardanelles Strait to international shipping. 13. An independent Polish state was to be established. 14. The nations of the world must form an organization to handle future disagreements and disputes. An objective reading of these points makes it clear that they were biased against the central powers. President Wilson wanted to make Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire as weak as possible while maintaining the British and French colonial empires. He emphasized breaking up Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Yet, he suggested Britain and France, much larger empires, merely listen to their colonial subjects. Even with this obvious bias, Britain and France were dismayed by Wilson's 14 points. Publicly, Lloyd George lauded the 14 points. He needed American support and could not openly disagree with President Wilson. But privately, 
British and French imperialists thought the American president was naive and ignorant of how the world worked. They had no intention of allowing American liberalism to deter their imperialist ambitions. In the next episode, we'll see what happens when Britain has to deal with their conflicting promises to the Zionists and the Arabs. We'll also discuss the launch of the German Spring Offensive. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Muslim resurgence that began with Imaduddin Zingi and the conquest of Edessa. But before we get into that, let's begin with a quick recap of where we are so far. In the previous episode, we discussed the Battle of Anjer Sanguining, also known as the Field of Blood. In this battle, Ilghazi, the Muslim ruler of Aleppo, defeated Roger of Salerno, the ruler of Antioch. This was a devastating defeat as it wiped out most of Antioch's Christian defenses, and this also signified the beginning of a Muslim resurgence. And with that, let's turn to the events leading up to this Muslim resurgence and the rise of Imaduddin Zengi. The Muslim resurgence actually began with the death of Tugtugin, ruler of Damascus in 1128. We mentioned him briefly in episode 4. His death threw Damascus into a state of flux and instability as different factions fought over control of the city. Meanwhile, Imaduddin Zengi, the Turkish ruler who started the Zengi dynasty, was rising to power. 
Imaruddin Zengi was known to be a brutal and harsh dictator, though perhaps he felt he had to be that way since he was surrounded by both Muslim and Christian enemies. In such an atmosphere, being merciless and cunning might have been a necessity. Despite his cruelty, Imaruddin's emergence marked the beginning of the Muslim revival. His father was executed for treason when Imaruddin was only 10 years old. After that, he was raised by the Muslim ruler of Mosul, Kerboga. We briefly mentioned Kerboga during the conquest of Antioch when he tried and failed to free the city from the crusaders in 1098. Considering this background, it should not come as a surprise that Zengi eventually became involved in politics himself. In 1122, the Abbasid Caliph made him the governor of Basra and Wasit. Not long after this appointment, the Seljuk Sultan Mahmud II rebelled against the Abbasid Caliph al-Mustarshid. The Seljuks had long controlled the Abbasid Caliphs and al-Mustarshid was trying to break free from their control. And though he was Technically a subordinate, Mahmud II wanted to teach the insolent caliphate lesson and reassert his authority. 